Welcome to the G3 Podcast, a weekly podcast focused on the Christian life where we examine doctrinal and cultural issues that impact God's church. My name is Josh Bice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Voilo. Well, here we are for another episode of the G3 Podcast. Jeremy, how are things in Los Angeles for you and Ginger and your family? Life is good, brother. Um, busy as always, but God has been very kind to us. We are enjoying life out here. Felicity is growing leaps and bounds, and her latest deal is dancing. So she's dancing all over the house, dancing everywhere we go. Uh, oh, wow. Super cute. So Baptist dance, that's that's interesting. Well, technically, I think it's a uh, she's jumping for joy. I think is oh, the term. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, she's she's all over the place. So we're trying to keep up with her. How is life in Atlanta on the East Coast? It's wonderful. Yeah, things are going well, and family as well. Uh, outside of a couple of little, you know, simple, uh, typical things that happen this time of year with you know, little colds and things of that nature, but all is well here. And we are uh, just excited to be able to gather with the local church on a weekly basis, fellowship and to worship God. And with that said, you know, we're going to be talking today about the subject of the gospel. So good news. We want to talk about that. Uh, Sometimes, you know, if we think about just in general, we hear people talk about, you know, well, we go to church or we we uh, had church or sometimes, you know, even in the, the pop culture, you'll hear people talk about, well, that was good gospel music. Or they might say something like, that person really took us to church in that song. I want to know what that means. I mean, because you hear people use that language. What does it mean to be taken to church? Um, they might say that this person took us to church in singing the song, but they really didn't talk anything about the gospel. Or you might have someone talk about the gospel and yet not really be meaning what we mean when we say gospel. So what do you think? Are you just in general terms, in the context where you are in in, in L.A., are you hearing people talk in, in that sort of framework or those categories, for instance? Well, I wouldn't say in, in my uh, surroundings here at Grace Church, I think um, by God's grace, um, the the gospel focus and gospel emphasis here week in and week out um, is is wonderfully balanced. I, I I do know what you're talking about though, and it's easy. <clears throat> excuse me as as we get into the Christian world and Christian subcultures to throw around the word gospel, to throw around the word church, and then we kind of wake up one morning and discover, wait, what does that even mean? What are we even talking about? Um, and as is common for all of us, we're all prone to imbalance, and we can we can jump on certain uh, hobby horses in our ministries or in our lives as Christians and lose sight of important elements of the Christian life, like the gospel. And that's kind of funny to think about Christians losing sight of the gospel. But there's all these distractions and even good things that can take our focus away from the main thing, and so. We need to define the gospel and we need to make sure that we are gospel centered and and often reevaluate. Mm. Um, have we lost track of the gospel? And yeah. if so, how do we get back to being gospel centered? 
Yeah. Early on, when we first started the G3 conference, the very first theme that we approached and that we were able to break down in that first conference in 2013 was the gospel. And so we want to have that discussion today to talk about the gospel. So as we think in terms of the gospel, if you just look at the Bible, for instance, you see the word gospel is used some 70 or more times in the New Testament. But the first mention that we have of the gospel is in Matthew chapter 4. And you hear the words, you you hear these very words in Matthew 4.23, where he says, uh, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So obviously this is a record of Jesus's ministry. Again, if you go to chapter nine, you hear almost an identical statement made about Jesus visiting villages, teaching their, in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Both instances in Matthew's gospel include Jesus proclaiming the gospel. Later in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, you have this statement. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this is extremely important when we think about the gospel. So when you hear that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel, what does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? And in a broader sense, what does the gospel even mean? What was he proclaiming? Yeah, it's it's a simple question, isn't it? But then if you ask any 10 people, you may get 10 different answers. I really appreciate uh, what Greg Gilbert did in his little book, What is the Gospel? He, he breaks down the message, according to scripture, into four essential pillars. So the gospel message contains four essential uh, truth truths or or pillars. The first is the reality of God. It all begins with God. In the beginning, God. So you think about what sin is. You think about um, why our, we have a relationship uh, breakdown with God. Who is God, and what has He done? Well, God is holy, and He is righteous. There's no impurity in Him. He's He's altogether different from us. And that means in his character, he is creator. He has made us. He has fashioned us. He has formed us. And because he has created us, he has every right to tell us how to live. And he's given us commands. And he absolutely has rights over our life because he's our maker. And God is holy. There's no impurity in him. That leads us to the second pillar. So we have God, who he is, the creator, and he's a holy creator. The second reality is who we are. We are the created, but unlike our holy creator, we are an unholy creation. We have rebelled against God. Adam and Eve, in their idolatrous uh, rebellion, rejected God as creator, choosing and wanting to be God themselves, and they have entered into sin and subsequently plunged the whole world, all of their progeny into sin. So now we are born into a sinful world with a sinful nature. And this means that we, though God tells us how we ought to live, reject that command, reject his His sovereign rule, and have instead chosen to worship and honor ourselves, the creature. 
This is idolatry. And so we are designed to worship and glorify God. And we as man, the created, have chosen to worship ourselves. So God is holy as creator. We are unholy as created, which means we deserve the justice of God, the punishment of God for breaking his law. We deserve hell. But in God's mercy, he has not abandoned us to ourselves, but he has created a way for sinners to be saved. That way is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that, Josh. I think we want to delve into that. But in a sentence or two, God entered this world, the person of Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the triune Godhead, entered this world lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die in order to be a substitute for unrighteous, unholy sinners. That's the third element of the gospel. So you have a holy, the holy creator, the unholy creation, and then you have that holy creator stepping into the world to substitute himself for sinners. And the fourth and final element of the gospel, this glorious reality that God has made a way for sinners to be reconnected with him in relationship, in right relationship, is our response to the work and person of Christ. And that's to repent and believe. To repent of our sin, meaning a whole person turning from sin in your mind, uh, changing your mind about your sin, in your will, determining to reject your sin, and in the direction of your life, turning away from that sin, a wholesale repentance of sin, and putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, and trusting him and him alone for that salvation. So those are the four elements of the gospel. It begins with God. It's the reality of us, who we are as sinners, it's the what the person of Christ has done, what he has accomplished, what he is accomplishing, and it's our response to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a really good way of summarizing everything. And when you think about the gospel itself, again, you know, we have these components or we have these elements, you might say, that if you were to take any of those pieces away, you would not have the full puzzle piece of the gospel. And I think that you would agree with me, Jeremy, that when we hear the the gospel preacher standing in a pulpit preaching the gospel, sometimes it's almost as if he's preaching part of the gospel, but he's not really preaching the gospel, if that makes sense. And then when you talk to people, you, you hear people, you know, if you, if you were to ask people why it is that they have assurance they're going to spend eternity with God in heaven, they will tell you on the basis of something other than the gospel. And this is troubling when you think about people are actually considering the fact that they're going to cross over the precipice of this life into eternity, and they're clinging to something other than their hope in the gospel. So by way of definition, everything that you said is true. Everything that you said or that, that Gilbert says in that book, which is, by the way, a really good summary statement and a good explanation of the gospel, is true. But yet when we think about the gospel, how could we define the gospel in, in just a quick summary statement? Because I think if you take away, say, the virgin birth of Christ, then that's not the gospel. Or if you take away his sinless life, that's not the gospel. Or if you take away his substitutionary death, that's not the gospel. If you take away his victorious resurrection, that's not the gospel. So in short, we find that God is holy 
and we're not holy. And then we think about the fact that the gospel involves this overarching plan, right? So we read in Romans 8, we see this plan that everything that you were describing a moment ago, that God is is holy and, and, and all of these component parts play into reality. But we see an organized, sovereign God who is ruling over this entire plan from beginning to end. So I would just simply like to talk about the gospel in the sense of a definition. Okay, a working definition. And so the word that we find in the Greek text is euangelion, and it actually appears some 70 or more times in the New Testament. And it literally can be just summarized in a simple statement as the good news or the glad tidings. And so we see that when the angels are declaring this message to the shepherds, uh, that, that they are declaring a message of hope, a message of good news. The Messiah has been born, right? So all throughout the New Testament, we're seeing that everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament has now come to fulfillment in this one person, and his name is Jesus, right? Absolutely. Um, he is the apex of the biblical narrative. Everything is in the Old Testament pointing to the cross of Christ. Everything in the New Testament pointing back to the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. It all finds its apex in the person and work of Jesus, which is which is why we need to understand Christ, his person and his work in in truth. Um, in the summary of the gospel, as we've been talking about it, it's 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 repenting of your sin and putting your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus, which means everything, your eternal soul and mine, hinges on the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. Meaning if we get that wrong, we lose our souls. If you do not know the Son, John tells us in 1 John, you do not know the Father. So yeah. it, we can't just have a fabrication of Jesus or a, a fabrication of what he's done. We need to understand through God's revelation, who is Jesus and what has he accomplished for the salvation of our souls? And it's in that Jesus and it's in that work that we put our trust. Yeah. Yeah. In, in that little book, Greg Gilbert uh, wrote, he tells a very fascinating story by way of illustration that I think illustrates a lot of this. When he talks about uh, there in Washington, D.C., that a man walked down into the subway with a little uh, violin case and a Washington Nationals baseball cap on in the early morning hours as the city is coming to life and they're on their way back and forth to the office or wherever else. And, you know, he, he walks down into the subway, opens up this case, puts this violin to his shoulder and starts to play. And people are just going about their, their, their daily routine. Some people are walking by with earbuds in. They're just not really interested in what he's doing. And he's playing classical music in the subway, and it's just echoing off of the walls. And he has his violin case opened up there, and people are coming by on their way, and they're listening. Some people are as they're waiting on the train, and they'll throw a few coins in his box, and they're thinking that maybe he's just a typical subway you know, musician, only to then read the newspaper article the following day and find out that that individual that some just ignored completely – Others thought that maybe they, you know, maybe he needed a few quarters or a, a couple of bucks. So they just threw some change into his violin case. They 
they came to realize that they were standing in the presence of one of the most accomplished violinists, Joshua Bell, who was playing, by the way, in that subway that morning, a Stradivarius violin worth $3.5 million. People paid lots of money to listen to Joshua Bell. And when I read that in Gilbert's book, I think that's the way that a lot of people think of the gospel. They hear things about Jesus and they say, ah, you know, I'll take that. I agree with that. But they don't really know who Jesus is. Let's let's think about that. I mean, that's a stunning illustration, but it, it it's nothing in comparison to who Christ is and what he's done. You think about who Jesus Christ is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why does John use the title? Here he is opening his gospel, his glorious gospel, written for the very purpose that we might believe that Jesus is a Christ and have life in his name. Why does he open his gospel calling Jesus the Word? Well, just think about the Word. I mean, here's a little fun fact for you. Um, Hebrew uh, Israelites in Old Testament times, they didn't have the breakup that we do in scripture of, for instance, if they wanted to turn your attention to a certain book, they wouldn't say, turn to Job chapter one. They would just begin by quoting the opening of that book. Well, when John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, where does your mind go? Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning. And so you go back to Genesis 1, and what do you see? In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Creation out of the word of God. And so here in John's gospel, John opens up and says, the Logos, Jesus Christ is the word of God. What does the word do? It creates, it sustains, it saves, it heals. God's word provides for his people. God's word is the self-revelation of God himself. And Jesus Christ is that word. Mm, Yeah. And he became flesh. Flesh. Yeah. And dwell among us. And then with that ringing in your ears, read through the gospels and see this Jesus in the wilderness amongst wild beasts. See this Jesus being spit on. See this Jesus being despised and rejected. This Jesus, the word of God being described as a man of sorrows. Mm, Yeah. The word descending into this creation and becoming despised, rejected by men, a, a one from whom we turned our faces. It's, it's, you talk about Joshua Bell descending from the stage into the subway and being rejected because people aren't seeing his glory, the glory of this world class musician expand that infinitely and you have God descending into creation and we rejected him. Yeah. Yeah. And in Isaiah chapter 53 and 52 and 53, you will see that the the prophet actually prophesied some 700 years before Jesus was born, that he did not have this, 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 uh, 
this image, in other words, how Jesus looked was not something that we would behold and say, that is the kingly one. He is, he is the one that we need to bow to. He's the one that we need to follow. In fact, the prophet says the exact opposite, that he's someone that we would reject. He would look common. He would grow up in a, in a carpenter shop. I mean, he's not, he doesn't look like the kingly type. And so all of these pictures that we see of Jesus hanging on walls that looks like this white man with long flowing hair and, and all of this, this model, that's not the picture that Isaiah gives us of Jesus. And so he comes, takes upon himself human flesh. He literally pitches his tent among his own people. They reject him. They turn from him. And then we find that in the early part of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew one twenty one, it uh, that the angel says this to Joseph when she was discovered to be with child to comfort her. This is the main. This is the message of the angel to Joseph, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that's. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah, that's that's the message of the gospel, that he came not so that he could put on a show or write books or so that he could be a performer or an entertainer. He came in order to die to save his people. And there it is. That's the climax, to save his people from their sins. So as we study, and Josh, this just should this should daily stagger us. As we study the person of Jesus, by the way, it was I. It was Jesus whom Isaiah saw in Isaiah six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon His throne, high and lifted up. The glory, the the transcendence, the robe filling the temple. The angels crying out, "Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh." The whole earth is full of His glory. That was Jesus Christ sitting upon His throne looking at rulers and kingdoms and determining the days and and the months and creating and sustaining this glorious person of Jesus. And he descends into this world and leaves his riches, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. He leaves his riches. He becomes poor. Why? To save us from our sin. If that doesn't astonish you at the weight and the horror and the grotesqueness and the severity of your sin, your sin, my sin, that in order to rescue us from it, God had to enter this earth and live as one of us in this vile world to rescue us from our sin. You don't get the gospel. Mm, yeah. And Josh, this is why we need to be passionate at this point is I've walked into so many churches, so many churches, and you see elements of truth being spoken. You see Jesus being exalted, but never is it against the backdrop of our depravity. Which really, sadly, diminishes his glory because only when you see what he's done in the face of who we are is he fully exalted. Because mm. in the face of my depravity to see what he's done, I can't help but fall on my face and worship. But if you leave out the message of my depravity, then I look at Jesus and say, great, thanks, man. Um, hey, I really appreciate what you've done. And uh Good stuff, you know, moving story. I'll celebrate it, you know, on Christmas and uh thanks. 
but but there's no reality to it because my sins didn't put him on the cross because we don't even talk about my sins. Josh, your sin, 2,000 years after Christ accomplished his work, my sin put him on the cross. And you say, well, how do you get there? Because 600 years before Jesus had come, Isaiah spoke collectively that Christ would be crucified in the future for his sin, Isaiah's sin in Isaiah 53. It is because of our sin that Christ was crucified. Yeah, yeah. And and strikingly, if you think about Isaiah's prophecy, you mentioned Isaiah 6. We read that wonderful prophecy there in Isaiah 6, where he literally sees this glorious depiction of the enthroned Christ before his incarnation, before his birth, seated in a ruling fashion upon the throne. But then the very next chapter, we read the prophet state that I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, mm. which literally means God with us. And then you turn the, the the page a couple of times, and you find in Isaiah chapter 9, this, this ruling picture of Jesus as being the hope of the nations, the, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then you turn the pages a few more times and you come to Isaiah 52 and 53, where he's crushed by the Father on the cross. And then you see his glorious resurrection uh, at the very end of chapter 53. So you have the, the full picture of the gospel contained in Isaiah hundreds of years before his birth. By the way, virgins don't just conceive. So this is an an unbelievable picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. And Josh, our desire as as those who've been entrusted with the gospel is to is to dis- put on display this glorious reality of what Christ has done and really as Christ himself did plead with people to come and drink. I, I mean, you think you think about it, we're living in this world where people are not happy. Never have has there been, or or certainly there's there's been comparable nations, but in recent in recent uh, history, America is a wealthy nation, a, a prosperous nation, a privileged nation, and yet people aren't happy. Why are the suicide rates increasing? Why why is depression increasing? Why are we putting everyone on meds? And because we're not happy, we're not fulfilled. We live in a world of discontent. And the message that you and I, and for our listeners, for any Christian, the message that you have been entrusted with is a message of satisfaction. You can be rescued from the sin that enslaves you, and will never satisfy you. You can be rescued from the kingdom of darkness, which has deceived you. You can be rescued from the impending judgment and wrath of a holy God, which is due you. And you can be ushered in to the kingdom and the glory of that God brought into right relationship with him because that God descended into this world, took upon himself the sin that you committed, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
For God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin, so that in Jesus, in union with Christ, we can become the righteousness of God. And in that righteousness, in that union, you can inherit every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our message. It's no coincidence that the first three fruits of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5 are love, joy, peace. What is everyone craving in this world? We want love, we want joy, and we just want some peace. And Christ offers that in the gospel. But the condition, you can't come with your sin. You must repent of your sin. Stop clutching it to your breast, put it down in repentance, and cast your soul upon Jesus Christ, what he has done, who he is, to rescue you from that sin, and you will be saved and ushered into the kingdom of Christ, where your life, no matter the circumstances, no matter the circumstances, cancer or riches, poverty, health, lot of possessions, no possessions, no matter the circumstances, you will have a life defined by love, joy, peace, and mm-hmm. on and on. Come yeah. to Christ. That's what we're proclaiming. And Christian listening, are you proclaiming that message? Is, is that the aroma of your life, proclaiming this Christ? Yeah, absolutely, Jeremy. That's a fantastic way to describe. In fact, as we think about the gospel being good news, we oftentimes don't really seem so happy as Christians about the good news. I mean, as if it's not really good news. But when we think about the fact that the second person of the Godhead literally came among his own people, was clothed in human flesh, lived this sinless life, a life that we were never capable of living, kept the law in totality, and then was crushed by the Father in a substitutionary way on the cross. And then after this this horrible murder, after this horrible, painful death, this ignominious death, he was placed in in a tomb. And then three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. And yet, when we consider the fact that this message has been proclaimed, it has been proclaimed by prophets of old, like Isaiah. It's been proclaimed by apostles like Paul and others. It has been proclaimed by preachers and pastors and evangelists. And it's been proclaimed even in this podcast. And the message is a good news because it's not just a good news, but as we see throughout the Bible, it is called the gospel, the gospel, because it is the good news of God, that any and all who would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, that any and all who would come and repent of their sins, that all of their sins will be taken away. So Isaiah 64, 6 talks about the fact that 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 all of our righteous deeds that we could ever offer up to God are considered filthy rags. I mean, if we think about what that means, that the typical cycle of a woman's cleansing cycle and those discarded rags, that the very best thing on our best day that we could offer up to God is literally reduced to that. And that all of that was placed upon the Son of the living God. And that 
he, God, took all of that filth and put it on his son and then crushed him so that our sins would be completely paid for. And then in turn, the shocking reality of the gospel is that he takes his son's perfection and places it upon us so that we can be saved, so that we will be saved, so that we will be welcomed into the presence of God. This is an unbelievable message, and it is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's astonishing, and it ought to define our lives. We have the greatest news that anyone could ever imagine, and we need to share that with the world. Absolutely, and we have that privilege. God has given us that opportunity to be a part of a local church, to be a part of families where we as fathers can teach this message to our children, where we can sit over coffee and have that conversation with friends. And so I would encourage any of the listeners today to take the opportunity that God's given you, that he's granted you, and then open your mouth, whether it be at the gas pump or over coffee with a friend, uh, seated there with your family members, maybe over a holiday meal or whatever it might be. Take this opportunity to tell the greatest news in the history of humanity to people who desperately need it, who desperately need it. And then as you think about the gospel, and as we think about the gospel, we need to be mindful that we're holding a conference this January that's going to be centered on worship. And so if the gospel is true, and we know that it is, then we have a reason to worship. So what is church about? Well, it's it's about everything that we've been talking about in this, this episode of this podcast and us responding to God in worship. So we pray to God. We read the scriptures that God has given us where he reveals himself to us. We preach and proclaim this message that we call the good news. And so we're going to have a conference this January on worship, worshiping this transcendent, glorious, sovereign, good God. And so we want to invite you to join us in January where we're going to assemble and we're going to sit and fellowship and we're going to worship this God together in Atlanta. You can find out more information at g3conference.com. Jeremy, it's been a privilege to talk to you and talk with you about the gospel today. I'm so grateful for your love and your passion for the good news of Jesus. And so we, we've been entrusted with this message and we should take it seriously. Absolutely. There's no higher calling. There's no greater privilege. Uh, so Josh, may you and I be faithful. And to you, our listeners, our prayer is that you would be faithful in inviting people to the supper feast with Christ, inviting them into the kingdom of God through the glorious work of Jesus Christ, his son. Let's be faithful in proclaiming that to the world. Amen. Amen.